I'm Katie Nelson, and this is The Gap. Episode 2, Internationally, Objectively. John Downing. Hi, this is Katie. Very good, Katie. Okay. All right. On the other line is Professor John D. H. Downing of the College of Mass Communications and Media Arts at Southern Illinois University. John is a communications scholar who's written at great length about mass media and social movements. Most notably, he's the author of the Encyclopedia of Social Movement Media, a one-volume encyclopedia that compiles over 250 essays on the experiences of social movement media in the 20th and 21st centuries from around the globe. To start off, I kind of started asking people, what role do you believe that social justice and pro-social initiatives should play in this commercial media space, if any? Well, I think, uh, first of all, the, 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 the question could be answered uh, in two ways. One is, uh, should they be covered? Uh, and obviously, obviously I, I think they should, on the most elementary definition of journalism, because uh, they do uh, create uh, uh, news. Um, and so, and they are happening, and the task of uh, news media is to report on what's going on. In terms of, of um, uh, the, the, there's a further question there, which is uh, what uh, what role they should play in traditional commercial journalism. It's entirely possible to report on something, but to do it from a huge distance, um, and very often a very kind of um, uh, almost, uh, let's say, supercilious distance, um, where you know, the social movement uh, in question, be it the labor movement or the women's movement or whatever, is defined as, uh, you know, a strange uh, beastie which has arrived. It's almost as though sort of a zebra with five legs had appeared. And so somebody's got to report on it, but uh, it's curiosity more than more than anything else. So obviously, you know, that kind of definition is already kind of saturated with, um, you know, social assumptions and political assumptions, uh, which need questioning. And by and large, uh, you know, in I think things may have gradually gotten better over the last decades, but uh, certainly about 50 years ago, uh, there were, seemed to be very few people around who would actually question those assumptions in most mainstream media. Absolutely. And... Where do you think that this social movement media you've written about and this commercial journalism diverge, just for definitional purposes? Sure. Um, well, very briefly, um, back in the um, uh, mid-1960s, I was living in uh, first one and then another uh, part of London. Uh, the first part of London was uh, an area with high immigration, uh, especially from the Caribbean and from Ireland. And the second one had been um, a major area of immigration from uh, Jewish ghettos in Eastern Europe and also Italians back in the turn of the century, that century. And um, when I was there, the Jewish folk were mostly leaving, um, and what would become Bangladeshis were beginning to arrive. So the whole question of race and immigration and ethnicity was much on my mind on a daily basis. And also in the second location, I was what was then the heart of London's Docklands, uh, 
since then it's moved kind of scores of miles away. But uh, sort of deep water ports. But uh, sort of labor unrest in the docks was uh, constant. Um, and so I became interested also, very interested, because I knew people, um, dockers, shop stewards, and so on. Um, and I became very interested in those issues too. I'm becoming interested in all these things that involve the actual people, be they people of color or be they uh, dock workers or whatever. Um, I became acutely aware of the gulf between them and their lives and the way they were reported on by mainstream news media. Mm-hmm. And so you could say that my interest in, in uh, alternative media uh, began with wanting to kind of shout at the TV news or throw the newspaper across the room in, in imitation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Uh, so that's how it began. Wow, that's an interesting story. Um, how do you wind up going from that to something like the Encyclopedia of Social Movement Media? Well, um, basically, uh, sort of a lot of my work was uh, trying to put this whole uh, zone of uh, on the map of uh, some of concerned researchers. That is to say, researchers who basically would like to see uh, society evolve in, in some different direction. And uh, it seemed to me that uh, all these media of various kinds uh, played an absolutely crucial role in in developing uh, what I call a, a democratic discussion and debate about how to move in better directions. Um, there was a lot of stuff written when I was uh, in my 20s and 30s about uh, the role of trade unions and about the role of sort of uh, small political parties with a sort of a, you know, big left-wing agenda and so on. But it seemed to me that uh, the the crucial thing was, a crucial dimension of all this was missing, Mm -hmm. which was how did the maximum number of people actually on the ground get involved in debating and discussing and reflecting on uh, different ways of organizing society? And so it seemed to me that media of all kinds uh, were an absolutely essential component of that. So my research was devoted to trying to bring to people's attention uh, the whole variety of such media um, as they had developed over you know, a century or two in order to sort of put it on the table as a, a crucial area to, to think about, to explore, and to learn from. And so that's ultimately the encyclopedia is my attempt to bring together a very large number of people across the planet um, to tell their experiences of such media in their situations. No, I'd love to kind of dive into a little bit of like, what is this gap? So you, you spoke earlier about seeing this kind of gap in understanding about how people were reported on in London. Um, mm-hmm. And I would love to hear a little bit more about that, one, kind of from the British media perspective, and two, since you've been here in the U.S., I would love to hear how you think maybe that's paralleled or not paralleled at all, what you think about the way the U.S. media handles um, similar movements within our own country. Okay, so first of all, um, 
Well, there, the, the period we're talking about then is sort of early mid-60s through 1980. That's mm-hmm. the point at which I left the United States. And the gap then was, uh, as it generally is, it, it's the most uh, commercial medium in Britain. Uh, the, you know, the person who, or the people who ultimately determine uh, the paper's agenda and priorities uh, are the uh, the owner and then of course the managing editor, and uh, the managing editor ultimately is responsible to the owner. And so, if there's uh, an issue of controversy, and these uh, social movements very often uh, are you know full of uh, it's, it's all about controversy in many ways. Um, if if that's the case, then the priority is always going to be what are the expectations of, of the owner. And this sort of filters down through the managing editor, through lesser editors and, and the rest of it, uh, to the jobbing journalists. And nobody, I think, usually bothers to actually tell the journalists uh, that, you know, the owner won't like it or whatever. It, it doesn't happen like that. Uh, it simply happens that you're a new journalist you submit your report, and it comes back with sort of blue pencil marks all the way through it. And uh, so you go and talk to the sub-editor, and he explains that, you know, we don't use that phrase. That's wrong. That's ridiculous, that paragraph. You know, you're not a trade unionist. Uh, this is not your soapbox, blah, blah, blah. And so you basically learn what flies and what doesn't fly uh, through uh, the blue pencil. And since you want to get ahead and you don't want to spend the rest of your life facing blue pencil until they eventually fire you, then you, you, you begin to learn what is expected and it becomes intuitive. Yeah, then of course there's the um, public service journalism or public service media in Britain, which should play a much larger part than, than uh, you know, public broadcasting is a sort of... A, service for mostly uh, upper middle class folks it's fine but it it doesn't have the uh, place in the national media system that the BBC does in Britain so <coughs> there it's a little different there um, the tendency in Spain reporting relations was to uh, for journalists to put themselves like interviewers and uh, chat show to put themselves in an intermediate place. They, they were not speaking for the government or the employers, uh, but they were somehow the voice of the public. And so what that kind of came down to in the case of a strike was that um, they would focus uh, almost exclusively on the impact of the strike on the general public. And they would spend almost no time really digging into, in a journalistic fashion, digging into what caused the strike. Mm-hmm. They would never suggest that actually striking was <laughs> something which workers are disinclined to do because uh, they're going to be robbed of a pay packet. Uh, not, you know, not in France, but I mean in most countries, uh, it means they're now without pay and could even conceivably be fired at the end of it. So it's... Uh, there was no discussion of what it meant for the people who were doing it, and why they had been driven to the point that only going on strike seemed like a way of, of uh, adjusting the situation in directions they wanted. 
uh, it was all about the impact on the public and how the public was suffering and didn't they care, uh, which, of course, you know, took the government's message, which didn't like strikes, and it took the employer's message, and it didn't quote them, but it made their case for them. And so um, these were some of the mechanisms within the public service journalism or public service media model, which ended up more or less in the same place, really, as the conservative uh, press that directly attacked the, the, the strikers uh, on principle because they didn't like strikes. So um, you ended up with two different ways of cooking the same omelette. Um, and uh, so that's the way that works in... in um, commercial and service journalism in Britain. In the United States, a uh, different scenario. First of all, um, there has been much less labor unrest here in the United States over the last uh, 40 years uh, than there was in Britain in the 60s and 70s, much less. Second of all, uh, the United States is far bigger. And so there are very few strikes which actually become uh, anywhere near national. It's sort of usually in one locality or another, one state or another, one city or another, or whatever, and therefore may or may not get national attention, right? Simply because of the the geographical size and um, population size of, of this country. Um, it's also the case that uh, labor unions in the United States have been kind of reduced and reduced and reduced until they now represent, I believe, something like 5% of the of, uh, of, uh, of workers. And um, so, again, the ability to strike uh, is reduced. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, in both Britain and the United States, uh, there's a certain commonality that successive sort of forms of labor law have been passed, which make it harder and harder to strike or even to form a union. So there's much less to report on in terms of stable union, I mean, labor union, employer relationships, because there are rather few labor unions uh, actually to do it. What about other social movements? How do you think those maybe have differed from, from the way that the labor movement has been covered? Uh, I think, I mean, one of the uh, continuous ones, obviously, which continues to interest me, is the movement for racial justice, mm -hmm. um, or movements for racial justice of various kinds, so, you know, Black Lives Matter and, and all kinds of others. Um, uh, again, uh, the story, the story here tends it's a difficult one. Um, I think that the expansion in the, in the numbers of African-American, Latino, and other groups, journalists, um, is a forward movement, and it's mm -hmm. to be welcomed. But it, they're not typically in senior positions uh, where they can actually have a, a major impact on editorial policy. So uh, they're, they're there visibly, um, but their ability to uh, change the tempo or readjust the focus uh, or, uh, you know, to do uh, sometimes the in-depth reporting of a time on a community or whatever 
which bees do. Uh, these are all kind of very uncertain uh, quantities. Uh, the result is that, you know, something like Black Lives Matter, the, the move begins. And again, a, a lot of the coverage seems to me to be prepared to define it as, a, as an outrage, um, that uh, people are subtly encouraged that these the, the, the leaders are saying that only Black Lives Matter um, mm -hmm. and all kinds of distortions. Uh, kind of really circulate. But you you talked a little bit about that that blue pencil earlier, and this or this isn't your soapbox to to do things on, and that these managing editors oftentimes say, oh, you're not being objective enough, and you're not being uh, balanced enough or neutral enough. Where where do you think that word objectivity um, plays into this conversation? Well, I think uh, think um, the whole thing of objectivity. I mean, on on one level. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, I, I think that there are elements in the, um, the objectivity thing which are uh, valid and, and valuable, which is don't make stuff up. <laughs> don't, don't sort of uh, generate uh, something which you call news, which is simply uh, a concoction which uh, your 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 purpose or your ideology or your uh, blind prejudices or whatever. But when it comes down to it, uh, very often what happens is that uh, gets defined as a uh, balance between uh, two actors. But quite often uh, situations are this where it's, in fact, more often situation is where there is there aren't just two hands. I give you a, a quick example. In the run-up to the independence of Zimbabwe in the 60s and 70s, uh, the British news media uh, went out to the time to interview people about what they thought about independence uh, and uh, how they felt about it. Should it be independent? Should it be a British colony? And so on. And they talked to the people who were perfectly happy for this to stay a British colony. As they talked to the people who were wanting to declare independence because they were being pressured by the British government to have a better deal for the African majority. Um, and they talked to everybody. The, the only thing which they didn't seem to notice is they talked to all the people who were in the, the different parties and so on in the parliament. But the parliament was only white, representing a little over 200,000 white people in a country of some 8 million to 8 million black people. And so they were very balanced within that framework. You know, they really did do their job of interviewing. They just didn't bother to interview anybody in the overwhelming majority of Zimbabweans. So they were objectives. They, they could not be faulted for objectivity as long as you didn't ask them about the parameters within which they were exercising their objectivity. What John is demonstrating here is what some, not all, but some, contemporary considerations of objectivity have become, portraying the proverbial two sides to every story. This notion of objectivity has been around for about two centuries, but it's really come to the forefront since Bill Kovach and Tom Rosenstiel published The Elements of Journalism in 2001. In their book, they laid out 10 principles of journalism, a series of quasi-commandments defining what it means to practice responsibly. 
They describe that a journalist's first obligation is to the truth and that they should remain independent from those they cover, among other things. But what they don't say is that objectivity must always mean journalistic duality or that journalists themselves are unable to feel what is an innately human bias. Here's John again. I remember talking once to a very senior British uh, news magazine, and he said it's apparently the practicality. You have a program, even a program which lasts five nights a week. And you have a program, you've got to be topical, you've got to um, make sure that you're up with whatever is newsy and people want to hear about and uh, so on and so on. And you have very often very little time, and you want to get uh, at least a couple of people with different perspectives in the studio so that they can talk and that they can talk coherently and that they won't start sort of abusing each other, you know, and, and so on and so on, and that they really know something about what they're talking about. He said, it's very little time. You're getting somebody at no notice. You're not paying them. And so he said, you are very often very relieved when you know, a quarter of an hour before the program is due to actually go on air live, uh, you've actually got two people there who meet meet your bill. And so he said it very often the either one side is true or the other side is true, this sort of uh, dual version of objectivity. Mm-hmm. When in reality, we all know that many issues have multiple sides, mm-hmm. you know? It's also the case, of course, that the explosion in the numbers of media and, uh, you know, the Twitter sphere and the rest of it mm-hmm. are turning this this uh, whole scenario uh, into something which is still taking shape as, as we as we speak now. And it's, it's difficult, at least for me, uh, to be to feel certain of the way in which it will sort of settle down and, and become, if you like, normalized uh, over, say, the next five years or so. I mean, I think that in some ways, uh, this is not quite on topic, but uh, it's kind of related. Um, in some ways, you know, the sort of uh, the president's use of Twitter uh, has been part of what I call its normalization. Mm-hmm. That is to say, um, the ability of uh, powerful people uh, to use it for their ends. Um, is something which about even five years ago, everybody was, or eight years ago, everybody was running about talking about the Arab Spring, mm-hmm. uh, saying how everything was changing for the better and the uh, you know, social movements uh, had their voice and all that. And it seemed to me at the time to be vastly overstated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, much as I don't welcome the current president's interventions on Twitter, I think it, it is reminding us that we live in a real world and not one where some communication technology can suddenly upend everything overnight. Mm-hmm. And would you say that's something that, that's both a, I guess, U.S. and internationally felt issue? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's what I call the operationalization of objectivity. You know, as an abstract proposition... Uh, it has a lot to commend it. As a practical, working, professional set of decisions and repeated decisions, which then become like, that's the way we do things, it's sort of self-justifying over time, it becomes the normal way to go things. Then it starts developing all kinds of problems. 
Do you think that there is the potential for a more robust ecosystem if we were able to kind of do away with this objectivity? Or do you think that this will this will always stay as something that if you well, believe I, in no, an objectivity, I, you can't you can't get around it? No, no, no. I'm I'm not nearly as uh, fatalistic as that. Mm-hmm. But I think that uh, social justice activists um, very often um, uh, it's much easier to kind of uh, produce a blanket dismissal of mm-hmm. of of the journalist who comes to see you. Um, than to actually uh, work with them over time. Uh, where it gets more difficult is uh, something like um, the case that uh, Patrick McCurdy looked at, the the uh, G8 meeting in Scotland uh, about uh, whenever it was, uh, quite a long time ago now. Uh, anyway, where you know there was a, a camp, a protest camp, and so on. And, and as you'll see from, from his stuff, I mean, some of the activists refused to talk to journalists at all. Some of them uh, talked selectively to certain journalists where they felt that their newspaper, the London Guardian, for example, uh, had some chance of being sympathetic to the cause and, and concerned at least to not misrepresent them. And so, but there it was like the camp. There's no chance of developing ongoing relationships with journalists uh, where there's something like a protest camp um, and then the whole thing unfolds and disappears and you you don't have an ongoing relationship with that journalist or whatever. It's, It's not, part of the problem is that social movements are very often not a beat in the same way that uh, finance or health or labor or whatever might be a journalistic specialism or, or politics, might be a, a, a beat that you follow year after year after year. Um, you know, there's not that continuity. And so maintaining um, a working relationship with journalists when uh, the issues and the confrontations come and go uh, presents, you know, practical, practical difficulties. Well, thank you so much for your time. Well, I I hope I've managed to confuse the situation for you completely. (laughs) Good luck with this, Katie, and um, thanks Mm. a lot. (laughs) So, continuous, consistent relationships. That's what's missing here. Seems easy enough, right? Next time on The Gap. This episode of The Gap is written and produced by me, Katie Nelson. A special thanks to John Downing for his time and to the Duke University Policy, Journalism, and Media Studies Department for its continued support. We'll see you next time.